Well, it has been a pretty busy week in the world of politics and news. Um, I was looking for something provocative to pick out of the headlines, and it was hard uh, not to find a dozen different things that could offend someone in the room. Uh, Between confirmation hearings and book releases and op-ed articles and tennis upsets, um, even corporate advertising, um, something in the news has probably gotten under your skin in some way. And we would probably disagree across the room as to what was offensive and why it was offensive. Lots in the world going on around us that can create anxiety, can create stress, can create worry and fear. And then you add on top of what's going on in the world around us to what's going on in our own homes and in our workplaces and our everyday lives, and it can get a bit overwhelming. And we can get through a week feeling a little bit discouraged, a little bit put down, a little bit unsure as to where our foundation is at. But at the, at the risk of starting a fight, um, I want to uh, share a picture with you. That may be familiar. Let's go ahead and, and look at this. Oh. So for those of you who have um, not been in the news at all this week, um, this is a Nike ad uh, that came out. It was um, a commercial that uh, was aired last Sunday uh, in, the, in the NFL uh, games. And it is a, an image here of Colin Kaepernick. Uh, I would not have recognized that face. You may or may not have recognized that face until the firestorm of of Twitter and Facebook uh, drew your attention to it. Uh, But this is Colin Kaepernick in this Nike ad, um, and he is the quarterback who was blackballed by the NFL for kneeling during the national anthem in protest for police violence, which did not go unnoticed and uh, became a huge point of argument, a big point of divisiveness, as, as ones were either for or against his taking a knee during the national anthem. And so by putting this ad out and putting him as the face for the 30th anniversary of the Just Do It campaign, it has reignited this argument once again. Maybe you've had this argument this week. Maybe you have bantered back and forth on Facebook. Maybe it has been a workplace conversation as you talk about why would Nike use Colin Kaepernick as the face for their campaign? Now, we're not going to um, defend it or attack it one way or the other. That's not our point this morning. Uh, But this debate opens up old wounds. There's questions of, is he a hero to be celebrated? that's drawing attention to an important issue, or is he a villain that is undermining the values of our country? And then you add on top of that, should a multi-billion dollar global corporation even be getting involved in this? And we're not going to answer any of those questions this morning. (laughs) 
but I want you to think about the emotional response that you have to either this ad or, or other issues in our culture that are similar to this. When you hear Black Lives Matter, how do you respond to that emotionally? When you see someone kneeling in protest during the national anthem, how do you respond to that emotionally? We could, everyone, shout out those things, and then we would have a complete uproar, because I know even within this room, there is significant difference in what emotional responses we have to something like this. And so do you have emotions of fear, anxiety, distaste, offense, confusion? Like, who is that guy? Division, satisfaction, excitement, energy, motivation, feeling of unification? What emotion do you feel around this? Because these are the emotions that you find in the book of Acts. This is what you see as the people of God are, are forming into this community. And suddenly the world is turned upside down. Today we're starting a new series on the book of Acts called The Gospel Gone Viral. And we're going to spend from now until Christmas going through the book of Acts. Now, as I think about the book of Acts, I think about my childhood and my Sunday school classes and Bible Bowl and, and those opportunities to learn the book of Acts. This, was, this is a favorite book of my dad's. He has taught the book of Acts more than anybody I know. This is his, his go-to section of scripture. And as I was growing up, I, I saw the book of Acts as a bit of a dusty history book. If it wasn't a dusty history book, then it was our blueprint for how to do church correctly, especially around the idea of baptism. Our heritage has not neglected Acts. We hold on to the first part of Acts very tightly as the way to do church correctly. And the only way that you could study Acts appropriately is with a map to be able to see how all of Paul's journeys connect to one another. This is the Acts that I thought I knew. It's just a document that's, that's saying Paul went to this place, and then he went to this place, and then he went to this place, and he went to this place. It's dry. It's boring. Maps like this one here show you what my childhood was like. You've got that map, Scotty? There we go. How many of you have seen this in the back of your Bible and wondered what it's for? <laughs> Where we just document location after location after location. Now, now, studying the history of Acts is not a problem. We need to understand what, what journeys Paul took and where he went and, and the theology and the doctrine that is presented in Acts. But it is so much more than just a dry instruction book. Acts is not a dusty old history book. It is this incredible story, a, a revolutionary story of the Spirit of God forming a community of people 
who are living out this, this new vision and this new world. This is a revolutionary story. Their love for God and their love for others was, was so contagious that people couldn't help but sacrifice everything to be a part of this movement of God. This is what the story of Acts is about. It's this radical change of life, this radical change of direction. It's a community that's being led by and empowered by the Holy Spirit to change the world. And so we see in Acts followers of Jesus who, who are moving from being spectators on the sidelines to participants in the kingdom of God. This is not dusty. This is not boring. It's the incredibly true story of a movement that starts in the book of Acts and it does not end at the end of Acts. It does not end at the end of the Bible. It continues on today. We are a part of this movement. We are a part of the story of God as revealed in Acts. And each of us are invited to be a part of this life-changing, world-changing movement. This is where we're headed in the weeks to come. The book of Acts is about revolution. It's about the, the lives of believers being disrupted by the Spirit of God coming in and doing things that they could not even imagine. And so to understand how radical this book really is, we have to understand the setting and understand the context and where it takes place. And so we go to this Roman Empire the story takes place in the setting of the Roman Empire, not, not an easy place for a resistance movement, because Rome is all about lack of resistance. Rome is all about shaping the world into its own image, shaping it into to its vision called Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, which was by sword, <laughs> not very peaceful. But this is what they were driving to do. Everything should look Roman. Because Roman way is the best way. And anybody who thinks they've got a better way, they're wrong. And this is where the story takes place. Their purpose as Romans is to promote the city life throughout the empire. That living in the city is the way to go. And so entire cities were built up, and entire economies were built up to support those cities. People were displaced and forced to work into the, the expansive agricultural needs of city living. We've got to support all the people that are in this city. And the bulk of that rested on slaves. And so this, this philosophy was built into their architecture, it was built into their politics, it was built into their, their buildings and temples and homes. And there was some accommodation of some uniqueness of beliefs, there was some accommodation of, of the, the cultural heritage that you came from, but that cultural heritage could not cross the line of questioning the divinity of the emperor or the divinity of Rome. That if anything that you spoke out like somebody else's king or this other way is the right way of being, you were destined for trouble in those environments. 
And so it would weaken the cultural and religious identities of the people that were assimilated into this Roman Empire. And we see Israel living in this environment, living within the empire, having some autonomy, but still under the rule of the empire. And they had been scattered, and they had been fragmented. They were in a state of exile and loss, and and they were displaced by Rome. They were living among the Gentiles in an empire that was eroding away their uniqueness, eroding away their faith. And even those who lived in Jerusalem were still under this, this empire, this Roman rule. I quoted Willie James Jennings in a sermon several weeks ago. It says, They live always on the verge of being classified the enemy, always in evaluation of their productivity to the empire, always having an acceptance on loan, ready to be taken away at the first sign of sedition. They live with fear as an ever-present partner in their lives, the fear of being turned into them, a dangerous other, those people among us. How does this sentence sound to you in our current political climate? They, feel, they live with fear as an ever-present partner in their lives, the fear of being turned into them, a dangerous other, those people among us. As we think about our faith in this current current culture, in this current political climate? Do we fear that our uniqueness as Christians might be eroded away and classified as them? As the other? There was this focus on survival, on securing a future for their families and their people. Life among the Gentiles and under the Roman Empire threatened to to drown out their Jewish way of living. Is this at all applicable today? As we look at the cultural world around us and who we are as followers of Jesus in a world that's not following Jesus. And this is where the story of Acts takes place. In the story of Acts, it comes in and it interrupts all of this. It says this is not the way to do it. It, it paints a picture of how life ought to be lived. Acts reminds us that, that, to the, that the Spirit is destroying the imperial design. The Spirit is coming in and upsetting the natural order of things. The Spirit of God is coming in and disturbing and interrupting Pax Romana. And that is the movement that we are a part of. Acts reminds us that that hierarchies are being flipped upside down, that that things that had been divisive, things like race and ethnicity and gender and economic class, those are irrelevant in the kingdom of God. The goal is no longer the peace of Rome. The goal is life together in God. A new king, a new kingdom. How radical is that message? We're going to start in Acts this morning. If you want to turn to Acts chapter 1. 
and I'll probably be done with Acts before you get there. Because we're only going to do the first two verses today. I promise you that we're not going to go at that pace through the whole thing. But just looking at these first two verses of Acts, we're going to start here. It says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. We're just going to pause there. And we'll continue next week. Because this tells us a lot about the context in which we're going to be reading this story. He starts off, in my former book. Well, what is the former book that is attached to Acts? It's the Gospel of Luke. The same author has written a two-part volume, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. It's part one and part two of the same story, the same author, the same context, the same audience. The two can't be read independently from each other. And that's why we started a whole series on Luke last December. And so we're going to spend a moment to review where we were at last December as we were going through the songs of Advent, looking at Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2. Because this is where the story begins. It does not start in Acts chapter 1. And so back in December, we went through these four different songs. And each of those songs are represented on these banners in the back of the room. I didn't just forget to take the Christmas decorations down. They've been left up for this moment. As we look at the context of Acts, resting in a much larger story than just what we see in Acts. We see Acts in the larger story of God, and we see in the introduction of Luke this theological foundation for what God is up to and what he's doing. And so we get to to Luke chapter 1, and we get to our first song, this song of Mary, this beautiful song that she sings. After finding out that she is going to be a young, unwed mother, She finds out that God has chosen her to work through. This servant girl has been given this life-altering message. Things are going to change for her. She's a powerless person, encountering God and receiving his favor, and she declares, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of, of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. And so in this song of Mary, we see this this story forming. 
the fulfillment of these prophecies being seen throughout Luke and on into Acts as we see these things coming true. And she emphasizes in her songs the things that God is doing. He's honoring the humble and the poor. He is valuing the marginalized. He, his disciples, uh, he discipline, he, sorry, he displaces, get to the right D word there eventually. He displaces the rich and the powerful. Status and power are turned upside down. And so Mary, with, with no status, one who would be invisible in her culture, now takes center stage and sings this beautiful song. This theme of status and power is woven throughout Luke and on into Acts as we continue on in the stories. And then the next song is Zechariah's song, where Zechariah has been waiting in silence because he questioned God, and so he could not speak until his son was born. Finally, his son is born, and, and through that time, his mouth is open, and he declares that the baby's name is going to be John. Much to the argument of his family and displeasure of his family, he is obedient in what God has called him to do. And then Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't just show up in Acts. The Holy Spirit shows up in Zechariah. And in this message, filled with the Holy Spirit, he sings this bold song. He says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and he has redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through the holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenants the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hands of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him in all our days. Here they are living in the Roman Empire. And he says, rescue us from the hand of our enemies. Enable us to serve him without fear. I wonder if they're singing this song in their gatherings in Acts. As they're reminded of the promises that were made to Zechariah that are now fulfilled in their coming together as a community of those who believe in a risen Christ. The, the song anticipates rescue from oppression sees a God who, who shows mercy, a God who loves, who brings light to darkness, guides them into peace. More than anything else, Zechariah desires rescue from his enemies. He wants to serve God his whole life without fear, without worrying what is going to happen to him. And it's this in, incredible prayer. I want to serve you with my whole life. Enable me to do so without fear. 
rescue us from enemies like poverty and mental illness and hate and divorce and division and racism and addiction and materialism. Rescue us from our enemies. This is all a preamble to the coming of Jesus. And in the, in the story of Luke, Jesus arrives with very little fanfare. There's just one sentence about his birth. But after his birth, all heaven breaks loose. And we see the angels coming in and singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And who is this message coming to? Who does this angelic choir come to? Not the rich, not the powerful, not those dwelling in the city, not the emperor. These angels come to shepherds. Shepherds, these ones on the fringes, these ones on the outside, these are the ones that all heaven breaks loose to. And we see glory to God in the highest heaven. These shepherds, they're not wealthy, they're not educated, they are not city dwellers, they're not part of high society, they had no status, no privilege, no power. They're the exact opposite of the emperor. They are lowly and humble, and they're the ones that God shares this good news with. And then finally we have the song of Simon or Simeon, who comes in and holds the baby Jesus. We don't know a lot about his vocation. We know that he's this wise elder who walked faithfully with God. He is righteous, he is devout, and he has been waiting his entire life for the coming of the Messiah. His entire life has been waited for this moment, and here, here God comes in the form of a baby. And Simeon say, says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. We're going to see in the book of Acts that one of the most divisive issues that hits the early church is whether or not the Gentiles are included. And here, at Jesus' birth, Simeon is saying, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, not just for Israel. He holds this baby and declares that Jesus is the light, the light that comes with great revelation, great glory, and Jesus is for everyone regardless of class and race, regardless of location or heritage, regardless of nationality or patriotism, regardless of political party, Jesus is for everyone. And through these songs and through these stories in Luke chapter 1 and 2, God uses this wide range of people and social backgrounds to, just, just, uh, to testify to who Jesus is. People in rural settings, people in the city, male and female, young betrothed couple and a pair of senior citizen saints. These are the ones that Jesus 
is testified to. And they all share the joy of his coming. And Simeon reminds us that Jesus is for everyone. Every one of us. Talking about people who aren't there yet. The people that we will see in the book of Acts. Hearing the message of Jesus. And coming to faith to believe in Jesus this risen Christ. That's a story we're a part of. And so if we look back on, on the Nike ad, it's a timely message. Because regardless of what you think about Colin Kaepernick, and regardless of whether or not you think it was a good idea or a bad idea for Nike to participate in this, regardless of what you think about whether or not it's appropriate to kneel and protest or not, this message was profound. And actually the most disturbing thing of the whole ad for me. It says, believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. Now for the advertisers, they mean believe in something, anything. Right? As long as you believe in it, then stick to it and hold on to it and sacrifice everything for it. And for me, that's the disturbing part of the message has nothing to do with NFL or kneeling or national anthems. It's the believe in something part. Because for us, we know that it's believe in one thing. And we see in the story of Acts, people who sacrificed everything for that belief in one thing. And that is who we are. We are people living in this new formed community around the risen Christ. That's the one thing we believe in. More than national anthems, more than NFL, more than tennis, more than a Supreme Court justice, more than a sitting president more than a political party, more than a country that we reside in, more than any of that. We believe in the risen Christ. And will you sacrifice everything for that? Because we live in a time where we will have to sacrifice more and more and more because of our belief in the one thing. Now this should be incredibly motivating, incredibly inspiring. It should be bringing hope that it doesn't matter what happens with Congress. It doesn't matter what the vote is. It doesn't matter who's president because we have one king. We have one king. And he's not a Republican. And he's not a Democrat. We have one king. And that's what we believe in. And that's what we hold hope in. 
that if the whole world falls apart, we've got a better option. We've got a better option. Let's be standing together.